Blog Talk Radio. Budget, 
that reflect community values, mm. that's an area to reimagine mm. what education can look like for mm. the children that they're serving, mm. that highlight student voice so that they're partners in their learning, mm. not empty vessels being deposited in by professionals. Mm. So I think the interesting piece is here, who, who are we talking about? We're talking about black and brown children, we're talking about rural communities, we're talking about all these pockets of marginalized people who are disenfranchised already. And now we are proposing, because we are in this area of privilege right now, being in this program, we're proposing solutions to a problem that by and large won't affect us. So I personally do not feel comfortable with saying things like, well, let's try it because what else? No, because the kids that are going to be suffering as people are trying to learn how to become teachers are already the most marginalized children, and I refuse to accept that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like, I'm always, I did this with my team during the year and just went down the side. I think it's interesting if you actually look at the history of education, you think, like, why do we have schools in the first place and where do schools start up? It's like a tenant of the community where the school teachers was someone that the community knew who took in the children to teach and educate them. And that, should, that, that happened, like, regardless. And if you think of, like, the history when formalized education came in, where states individually mandated, like, the last state was as recent as, like, the 1930s and 40s. We're about, like, a, under 100 years of actually having schools in operation. And it, it, I definitely agree with systemic. And I think the, kind of the other side of the question is where, what locations or areas are there um, lowering the bar to allow teachers to teach, and is it impacting communities of disenfranchised, of color, of black and brown children? Because then that is dangerous because then you do have an even wider gap between communities that have trained, certified, masters, college educated, university educated teachers versus those that have just a high school degree because there's what we have here. And I think the deeper you look into it, I sometimes get disenfranchised with this career teacher education because it is somewhat a capitalistic um, systemic system that we're funneling our black and brown kids into. And I think there's a danger saying, go to college, go to college, and telling that to all of our students in South Bronx without actually educating them what does it mean to take out a loan? What does it mean to have that interest compound? What does it mean to choose a career that you're not going to be joyful in? And now you're stuck um, with a battle of like over 200000 in debt, and you just become another money marker for a system that pays like the college board CEO earns $2 million last year just from getting SAT, like from the SAT money. College Board itself is a one, over a $1 billion revenue company that we supposedly support to this gimmick students to go into college to take out loans to continue to support the people at the top. And so when are we going to rethink, and I'm not going to say, what's up, what's up, what point are we going to rethink where do we make education viable for people of our community to actually empower them to take back their communities and become leaders of their communities? If I want my students to become a lawyer or doctor, it's because I want them to come back to Mott Haven itself. I want them to come back to Southgate mm-hmm. to open a law office in that area to support the people in that area, not solely to go out, get out of debt, and live in a nice house in the suburbs somewhere far. I, I, my goal in charge is to encourage kids to look at their neighborhood, and this is why my own stance from Teach for America is like when they came in and said, we need to close the education gap and save these kids, I was like, save them from what? Mm-hmm. From their own neighborhood? This is where they live. This is where the friends are. Why not instead change the mindset and say, 
You need, want you to go get educated, gain the skills, go to college, go to trade school, go to technical <coughs> gain something to come back and contribute to your community, to your neighborhood. You don't need anyone to move you out or price you out. And that's the real empowerment that I believe, like, I get, I, I get myself back and motivated back in the game to think about, this is the goal of what we got to do for our children and our kids, to help them see the system for what it is, understand what they're signing up for, because as long as they know and they're not tricked into signing up for a loan, and signing, if they're willing to sign up for that debt and willing to go through that arduous route like we were, then they're going to be co-conspirators in this battle against the system that stands against them. Okay. Here. So I'm going to surface things such as a decentralized system that focuses on the local channels of increasing student capacity through whatever means, be it trade, be it academic meetings. Um, and I'm thinking about how we're talking also about a policy suggestion that was implemented in one place. Like we are still in that centralized uh, system of education where there is still like state level choice where people are able to make those decisions that are unaffected. So some of our perspectives are based in what we know about our context. And so I know that as we are having this collective conversation, we are also moving towards this idea of returning to uh, the essentials of education. It's like, what does the community need? And when we take it back, what systems are put in place? What do we agree to as a society to say, this is how our school will work? And so I'm wondering, what other levers can be pulled other than teachers? So perhaps I know that in the pandemic we were asked to rethink schooling in other ways. And so I know elementary schools sometimes had shift schools where there was day and night, and then the same teachers were able to serve two groups of students where quality was maintained because you have the same high-capacity educators, but they were <coughs> more targeted in their, in their teaching time and were able to access more students um, so I'm wondering, like, what are other variables that can be considered other than changing what capabilities the teachers who are before kids have? Well, just here, can we think also rethinking, you know, I feel like why we're going back to sort of thinking back to quote unquote normal if you can bring any more of the pandemic. But um, in the server to catch kids up, I think the question is also what are the standards that we're even trying to reach? I think in thinking about what levers we also have to think about how do we want to reimagine what kids are getting from education because these standards are put into place and are very narrow view, right? They're very centered on specific groups and completely marginalized others. So I think an important piece to that question is also what do we want kids to get out of education in general? What are the standards and markers of learning? And who is deciding those? Not also, it doesn't necessarily equate to competency just because you've been teaching for a long time, just because you have all the training and work that it needed to connect the kids or that you're able to teach them effectively. Mm. Mm. Fire, I agree with you, Maria, on Philadelphia, but I also think, like, a lot of what we talked about in my preparation program were things that I needed to know before I went into the classroom. Like, um, you know, we were, we took a whole course on the laws around special education, and if you are not complying with special education law, and I took you into a classroom, like, I really believe, you know, it's putting harm on these students. I think also, you know, a lot of us it, have gone through programs that are similar in recent years, and we've done a lot of work on um, recognizing bias and identity work, and especially as a white educator who works with color, like, I was not prepared before 
before going through that credential program to go into the classroom and you know promote equity of voice and work with my students' backgrounds. Like I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I think like to you know uh leapfrog over that and go right into the classroom, I don't think that's the teacher that's a success either. I was sure my own personal bit, I was a teacher of America and I signed up right at undergrad. In my first interview with Bronx Preparatory Charter School, I sat there at the table with the principal and I did the interview, the, the demo, interview students and teachers, and sat there with the, the leadership team. And the principal asked me, um, why should we hire you? And I totally agree with you. I was honest. I said, to be honest, because I was just greenfoot, I, I looked him straight in the face and I said, to be honest, you shouldn't hire me. You may have your mind to hire me. Because if you think that this four-week teacher America boot camp program where they throw us and teach us keep us late at night and do all this thing is preparing us to actually teach a group of kids, no. But I told them what, but I'm willing to learn because I do want to be in the classroom. I'm willing to take instruction. I'm willing to take feedback. I'm willing to do what it takes to get better because I know for myself, I, I did make a career change and I did value education. And I did see myself making an impact in children's lives. And so if he was willing to take a chance on me there, then I said, I'm all in. And so, and it's hard to navigate that because how do you identify those individuals that are able to do that versus those who don't deserve that chance? So don't leave us hanging. Did you get the job? Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs>
training procedures or like things within the system and then saying the system's not working um, and then trying new things and it's never going to work because you need to fundamentally change the way we think about it, like fundamentally, and when's the last time you've actually done that? What is this? Sorry, I just enjoyed um, to, to directly address the point that you're making, Adam, I agree. Um, and I agree that there are so many systemic issues that we have to work um, But the idea that a child has to finish K through 12 in those 13 years is actually an American societal norm. Mm -hmm. And I can say that as someone who has been an educator abroad in Mozambique, if a student did not pass their standardized exam, they failed that grade. You know what they did? They came back the next year and they learned those skills with the proper time and the proper education that they needed. So I think that we as a society need to stop having a norm that you have to finish by 18 for a failure, right? I agree. Give more. But that's not the system. That's like that's in our hearts. Like that's that's not something that you can policy your way out of. That's mm -hmm. a mindset change. Yeah. Well, policy is changing That's let me push back just a little bit because I explained to you, um, and, and maybe not in, a great, in great detail, about um, when I was in, on the Board of Education in New Haven. And I just want to remind you that um, there was a great deal of unrest in the community around making the decision uh, and, and putting in place a policy of no social promotion, so which happens in some places, just pushing my head. And so that's actually how we end up hearing stories like there are children who are in the ninth grade reading on a fourth grade level. And so the decision that we had these benchmark points, grade three, grade five, and grade eight, to ensure that students were on grade level didn't come at a small expense and didn't come at a small, uh, as a small endeavor uh, of training and resources. I remind you, so go back to your Mozambican uh, reference, is that I, I remind you that um, instead of placing all of the responsibility on children, See, the, the, the thing that I want you to understand about our system is that as far as measures go, it's the only system that I can think of where there's one indicator of success. And, and, and by and large, we, you know, the studies show all these different factors contribute to whether a child is successful or not. However, the only accountability place that takes place basically is in the hands of the children or on, on, on their shoulders. And so what I mean by that is that, so if the children don't pass, they stay behind. And so, but the other model where I was talking about the no social promotion model that was different was that, yes, there were consequences um, for children that didn't pass. However, there were children, there were resources that were made available to get the vast majority, I mean, like the overwhelming majority of children on grade level was the point. And so teachers, so teachers stayed behind and, and taught in summer school. There were transitional grades, whether it was a transitional fourth, a transitional sixth, or what have you. 
is that these were put in place as safety nets of sorts so that the sole responsibility was not just on children to pass, but that the system was put in place that guaranteed their success. So that's very expensive. But um, we have to start thinking differently about accountability. Um, and I, I, I share one story with you. Uh, one, I was working with the school, and this was uh, um, a school in Brazil, and, and I never will forget this courageous principal had, a, had um, where they, they used to do kind of grade team level meetings if a child was going to fail. And so the whole grade level team had decided that there were three children that that particular year that were going to fail. And the principal had just had it with, okay, these are the kids that aren't, weren't successful this year. And pushed back and said, what can we do to get those children where they need to be? And so all of the teachers were like, oh, it's hopeless. They can't do it. They need another year. And, but what did you do? And they couldn't talk about the measures that had been taken. And then the principal said, okay, I'm not going to overrule you that you think this child has failed or these three children have failed. Now you've identified three children that have failed. I want you to give me the names of three teachers that shouldn't be hired next year. Because just because children failed, there were some adults that failed too. So give me those names. Because we're talking about credentials and all that. Okay, great. So we need teachers that we need people who have credentials to teach. Okay, I'll give you that. What about the heart? What about the mind? What about the teacher who comes to school and they teach our children, but they don't have in their heart to even care about whether they have? So I'll give you an example. One of my students was on a promotion in that and the principal said, well, I said, well, what's the likelihood of this child being left behind? Well, you know, some teachers need to repeat the You know, it's not the first thing anymore. And I had a lot of time. I said, I'm not going to I went home, and I had about, I would say about four or five months to make sure that this child was not going to be left behind. And I said to myself, I will not. The reason I know is I know that I have done everything possible for this child to actually make it to the next grade. So I took that child by my side, and every time we had reading, writing, or math lessons, small group lessons, that child was with me for the small group. No matter what group I had, I called them. And I made sure at the end of that school year, I went and I put every single folder from that child's desk right in front of the principal, and I said, this is why that child should pass. She read everything and said, you actually brought that child from this point to that point? Within only a few months, I said, yes, because I can. Because I would not allow that child to slip through the cracks. And his mother came to him in the school and said, You are the opinion of our teacher. You are the reason why we sent our children to school. Because you can. So I do say this to say, we need teachers that have a heart to want to put in that effort. To want to put in the groundwork, to put in everything in your body to make sure that your children in front of you in that classroom. They pass that grade because we want to be accountable for every child in our country. That comes to the point about capacity of a teacher in two ways. So first, what are the boundaries that you have to maintain yourself 
sustainably because we are working within a system that has not equipped us with support and the tools. And then as someone who has literally had to take like medical health leave because I was not able to sustain that kind of work, I can say that that is not something that we can do for every student that comes through the space. Mm -hmm. And so the other side of that, if we're looking at a system where we're, you know, say, come who may to the classroom, what onus does that put on schools for school-based training? And how are they going to be adequately equipped to then train teachers with enough skills and tools and strategies and mindset shifts and like the hard work that needs to be done to develop them to the people that will then serve kids. And to the point of it being, we want to train people who are in the community to come back to the community with the skills that we've equipped them with, with them with. We are in a globalized world now. And so people see their options everywhere. You can teach anywhere in the world. You can work anywhere in the world. So why would I want to stay here? So I think there's a lot of competing interests that we also have to factor in in order to have a realistic conversation about how policy and practice is affected. Yeah. I have a question. That model in New Haven, was it successful? Yes, very much so. So um, why do you think that that model has not been replicated in somewhere like New York City? It's a Expensive. Mm -hmm. Very why, expensive. Well, I, I wish if I had if I had the answer to that question, you know well well let me let me tell you let me tell you one one thing one thing about that particular approach, which was highly controversial, was that you may recall I told you it that the results show up seven years, eight years later, because it showed up and people said, how did you get your high school kids to do so well on the CAT test? And it was like, remember back when they were in third grade? I mean, literally, it was from one cohort to the next. So the cohort before them didn't have it. The cohort, the particular cohort had it. And so they, it was one year. It's like, what do you mean there's no, um, you didn't do anything at the high schools. We didn't do anything at the high schools. This was about what we did at the um, elementary level. But the whole point was, as you may recall, I also told you, it was so expensive because you had to have, we had committed to having a, a, a trained literacy aid, not, not a trained teacher, but a literacy aid in every classroom below grade three. Imagine the cost. You like do the math on that for New York City, right? No, no. I I understand your frustration. Is that because we'll spend money on a whole lot of other things? But when the, so, I'm just going to tell you that it's not. And I start so many talks that I've given around the, around this this one point is that we don't need another study to tell us what we need to do to improve the conditions of education in this country. We know what we need to know. We don't have the political will to do it. So why, why are these people, I, I, I just want to make like, if we know, we have a model that works, and we know that the amount of dollars that we have, why are not the right people occupying the right spaces to make it? There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody 
And then when they get in office, sorry, but like our current mayor, they make all these promises about where they're going to put the money, and then they get into office and they cut the budget this year. After they told us that they wouldn't. I, I just want to add that everything in this country is driven by politics. Politicians are successful when they can persuade you. Right. It is extremely hard to persuade an educated person. They don't want us to be educated. We live in a country where we live in a state where they pay upwards of $70,000 to keep me locked up, but $22,000 to educate Yes, we know. Add more money, teachers will say. When I say add value to education, it's not just the importance of education. Mm -hmm. Add the money that it's going to cost to, to, to make sure teachers feel like, okay, yes, I was stressed out because it's a tough job mentally training. But guess what? It's worthwhile because one last thing I got to worry about is my bills, right? But when you do have teachers that come in, and I'm not, I was not an education major. My first education degree is the one I'm working on now. I have two bio degrees. You know how hard it is to know that you go to a school every day and you're underappreciated and underpaid when you go right across the water to the biological hub of America and get a lab job making twice as much money? It's the country that we live in. Yes, you got to attack the politicians, but what does that mean? Are we, are, are we going to boycott them the way that we say? Are we going to boycott the businesses that pay them? Like, it's a big fight and it's multi-layered, but are we going to do the work? Yes, it's nice to say that Oh, you don't have to go to college. I need my more black and brown people in, in, in trade school. So then who's going to teach the next generation of black and brown people real old trade school? We, we got to figure out what's important to us as a people. To me, education is important. To me, creating more black and brown teachers to uh, uh, assess our black and brown kids is important. But it got to start coming. Well, teachers want to learn um, improve students' uh, performance across across racial lines, even for white children. So, and I think even that representation in the community a little bit is important so that they can see some of those representations of what black excellence is, of what black humanity is, of what black women experience is. And, and that's not just including race, but even in terms of you know gender identity and sexuality, we need more representation so that children are better prepared to step into a global interconnected society and participate as active citizens. But, Kim, to back to what you were saying, we, we, we don't need any more genetic models. We have models right here in New York. We travel 20 minutes from here. But I think it, again, goes to whose lives matter in the decisions do not. And what system, you know, the system is built, our school system is built up in white supremacy. And white supremacy works to destroy anything that, has, that is different from cisgendered like Christian norms. So look at the DOE. It, 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 the system is not built to serve these kids. So we know what models work. We don't like that because we don't need the research. Because all the research is already there. And 20 minutes away, children are having completely different experiences as to what education is. I'm going to hold the line on well-trained teachers because what my kids need 
in the South Bronx is not another teacher who does not know what they're doing. And yes, there needs to be cards. And yes, you're not going to get paid, but it is. You should be. But you should be. Because again, 20 minutes. You should. 20 minutes. You should be. But if no, like if you don't do it and you don't have the heart, you might as well not be. Right. No one wants our life to be like literally on the off chance of a fail forward model. Let's throw you in a room. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. If it wasn't for education, I could be dead or in jail Teachers, it's like equivalent to like 
doctored or more than doctored or something like that. I, I don't I don't remember what yeah. it was. That was not I know they said we made
So that is this, that achievement now, by the time they get to you, are they going to have the skills, the habits, the mindset to be able to attend to this? That curriculum is my question. So um, I know we, you know we've spent a lot of time, and little did I know, like kind of throwing that uh, grenade in the room would get the the, the results it did. Um, and it's been a great conversation around that. Um, I do want to pivot because I have um, something else I'd love to hear from you about. And I, you know, I went last night. We had a show that we had educators from. Let's see, we had someone that was in Tampa and a couple of people in, in New York City, uh, but we were talking about a variety of topics, but I asked them the question, so how are people, how are kids, what, how are people doing in, you know, kind of post-pandemic? I was, um, dare I say, a little frustrated during the pandemic um, because I invited guest after guest, expert after expert, um, to talk about what they thought was going to happen, what they thought was going to be uh, some of our issues once we emerged from the pandemic. And I kept hearing people say, um, and this was during the time, and I think for some, for some reason they wanted to be optimistic, and I can understand <coughs> it, um, but they would say, kids are so resilient, you're not going to have to worry about kids. And they said that over and over again, and I just – kept thinking, but you just took a group of people that all they've, so one, all they've ever known is, you know, kind of the school, and, and all we've never ever known is a model for how you do. You know, you look forward, you go to school, and then it happens year after year after year. You took, you disrupted that, not, not intentionally, but we had to make a decision and we disrupted that. And they went in isolation for the better part of a year or in some places. You know, I laugh because um, in Louisiana, um, you know, kids got out in, let's say, March or April and went back to school in September, never, you know, like for the whole pandemic. And the rest of the country um, was still going, was still at home. Um, but there were places where kids really didn't return fully for a year and a half. And so, but I kept, people kept saying to me, kids are resilient, kids are resilient. And so um, I just want to hear from you uh, because I think it's really important for people to know um, because I go and I talk to principals, I talk to teachers, uh, and I just hear something very different on the ground about the disruption. And let me just say one other thing before I get your opinion, because the other thing is, is that there are kids that usually go to, go to school at age six for the first time, some age five. That shifted too. Some kids went to school for the first time age eight or age seven. And their orientation to the world of education was also different. And so they never knew it. And I, I used to think about when I would go in the grocery store at the height of the pandemic, and there were only four or five people in the whole grocery store. And little babies would see so many adults with the mask on. And I thought to myself, what's going to happen when the masks come off? And kids are going to be confused. But I still have people say kids are resilient. 
I just want to hear, and kids are resilient, but, I, but, but not without impact. So I just want to hear from some of you, Giuseppe, we'll start with you. Yes. Um, but I want to hear from you. Tell me how, you, how you're experiencing children now. Yeah, so Pepe, I teach in the Brooklyn Public School. Um, I started to my career teaching first grade, then she moved into second grade because of the pandemic, and I'm in the third. And the, the impact of children's of the, of the children's development, socio-emotional development, is insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember we had a kindergarten class, a lot of them teach kindergarten, we had a kindergarten class that came in this year, never been in school, we know now that also your standard of kindergarten is elevated. It's no longer play-based, really. And you work and you play maybe for one period. That's not enough for kindergarten, as we know. They had three teachers turn over throughout that year. For kindergarten, little cuties. But they were menaces, I'm going to say in quotes, air quotes, menaces, because they had never known how to interact with each other. So it was, a, it was a very individualistic, selfish mm-hmm. way of moving through spaces. And pre-K, pre-K, we know that also there's been a lot of pushes, especially in New York City, to make that available to others and because we know the value in it. But because they never had that, we are, we're having young, young people act in a way that we see grown adults act um, who have never had the support in place. And so it's really, really disconcerting when we hear that say the children are resilient, yes, and mm-hmm. they're resilient only because the people around them are pouring into them to kind of meet their needs where they're at. Maria from Boston, and with that being said, also the pandemic has had such a detrimental effect on parents. Mm-hmm. Um, before the pandemic, parents had access to services such as early intervention. Yeah. And now with the pandemic, that is even more difficult. And so families feel exhaustion. So now that everything is opening up and so-called back in business, they just make teachers go. And that is wrong because now it's difficult to foster collaboration between educators and families. So we need to reconstruct that trust so that the child's learning is possible. Thank you, this is New York. Um, for students at the high school level, Right? When they came back to high school, they were unable to interact with each other. Oh, yeah. Even the smallest of issues that happened, like they needed someone to intervene yeah. and mediate. And we had ninth graders who were acting as if they were in seventh grade mm-hmm. because it was the last time they were in school. Yeah. So we had to shift our instruction to give them extra scaffolds because they didn't learn certain skills that they were supposed to learn. Mm-hmm. And then behaviorally, in some schools, we supposed to touch the rate even higher, right? Because they, they had behaviors that they didn't really, they shouldn't be exhibiting. Mm-hmm. Um, Maria here from Bridgeport. Um, I also teach high school. Um, the one thing that we saw in our, seen in our school is um, an uptick in like, anxiety and depression as it's interesting to our students. Um, and we ran a circle with our students when we first came back. And one thing that one of my students said was that it was the fear of the unknown. Um, not knowing when they would be able to see their friends again, not knowing when they would come back to school again, what classes would look like, things like that. These are things that they are continuously dealing with. Them. Like we had this situation that we like had to navigate through and we didn't know how to, and now we're afraid that it might happen again. Yeah. Um, and I'm also seeing, uh, working in an urban district, 
um, that a lot of our students, their parents were essential workers, had to work, right? And so the, uh, the kids had to essentially be at home with younger siblings, and they had to be caregivers with siblings. We had so many students in our schools whose parents either were in the hospital, they didn't mm-hmm. want them to pass the mm-hmm. and they're away from all of their support. Yeah. And that affected them in a way that many of them haven't even been able to recover. Yeah. Can I just add, like, I also, um, I experienced teachers um, that place judgments on those families. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your kid is not doing their homework. They need to fail. This is like, bro, do you understand what it's like to live in a one-bedroom apartment with five kids? Okay. Do you understand this reality? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't, and I, 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 I had to struggle at work because they tried to make a requirement to be on camera. And I know instantly I would lose 50% of my kids because I know a lot of them are not comfortable with their housing situation being on camera. Um, I'm a teacher. I don't want y'all to be in my
before your careers, I want you to go off of this because I think the pandemic brought forward as as future leaders, principals, superintendents, however you may be, you're going to be in charge. Keep this in the forefront as you realize what is vital, most important in the schools that you lead. That the forefront should be the care, like the warrants and enders we learn in creating that holding space for your teachers and understanding who they are and what their needs are, even if they're unspoken. And at the same time, let's continue in the classroom. Like that, that's also the forefront of what our students need. And I think seeing these gaps and what they're missing, what they've offered in two years, it's not that we're pushing aside the standards or teaching education, but we're also making them a component of the classroom, like an environment where they feel felt, where they feel cared for, where they feel acknowledged and heard. And I, I ask you, um, like how I many of you have personally, like, gone out to visit or do a home visit with your students who actually get to know them in their household and understand who they are and their families are. And not saying that you have to, but just thinking about that, if you ask that question to yourself, like, do you, are you authentically trying to understand the community that you are serving? And are you authentically trying to lead the community of staff and faculty that you're leading without knowing who they are and not recognizing their needs? I think the pandemic magnifies those needs were already there. Those needs were down in the cracks and hidden. Those, those gaps, those things that they were missing. The parents had been working full-time jobs, two jobs. They didn't do that. But what the pandemic did was it put a magnifying glass on it and exacerbated those, those gaps. They brought it to the forefront. And so if we think they're going to go away, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> So I just want to thank all of you. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation as we wrapped up um, a, a summer of intense learning. Uh, and um, for those of you who are listening in, um, I always like to think of it as eavesdropping on our conversation. Um, I wish you could have been in here to feel the energy in the room. Um, I'm um, hopeful and optimistic, given the educators I'm in the room with today. Um, some uh, compassionate, uh, empathetic uh, leaders that understand the challenges that we have. And so um, as we wrap up this anniversary week of um, celebrating 10 years of Perkins Platform, um, an episode every night, um, just know that um, I'm going to endeavor to bring uh, more of of this kind of discourse to the table um, for educators around the world. Um, and so um, I know that I'll see this group again, um, and so maybe some of you will have the pleasure of being in a room uh, as big as this with this number of uh, brilliant minds. Um, and so I'll see you next Wednesday at uh, 6 p.m. for another dynamic show. Until then, go well, stay well.